0: Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. Fifteen years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio Source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Blyton. This is Open Source. What we're talking about is money and power, meaning the political economy we all live in with some anxiety. Mark Blythe is our authority, professor of political economy at Brown University, And he's the noisy know-it-all with the working-class Scottish accent in our virtual pub conversation on open source. Mark is revered around here for his mastery of A, markets, and B, the vernacular that makes money and power a plausible story for the rest of us. Mark brings an understudy this time, our sometime colleague Brendan Greeley, who has just stepped away from finance journalism to pursue his PhD in economics at Princeton. The news, so-called this 4th of July week, is not encouraging. Consumer sentiment, according to the Wall Street Journal, is as low as it's been since the recovery from World War II. The world's biggest economy is slowing down. Inflation spiking to a 40-year peak. Interest rates on mortgages heading up, sure to slow construction and home sales. Those are the headlines. The mood in the pub is something else. Welcome back to the pub, Mark Blythe, with your sidekick, Brendan Greeley. But first a note about the pub. The funny thing in this dark time is that almost everybody in the pub is working and spending and living pretty good lives. There's a paradox there. Why so glum? We seem to be doing okay and vice versa. Chris,
1: who the hell's we? It's simply not true that we are all doing fine. We haven't been doing fine as a collective for a very long time.
2: The collective is the problem. The pub is okay, though. That's part of the problem, is that we feel that we are okay looking at our own incomes. But when we look at the country, we're so colored by sort of what we think should be happening that we're unable to see that perhaps we are actually doing okay.
1: I'd agree with all of that. But I also think that it's important that now that we're a year into, let's call it the post-transitory inflationary moment, that we ask some of the people in the pub how they're doing rather than presume that they're okay. Let me give you some examples from the UK. There are people in the UK, which is already a low-wage economy, about 40% of the UK labor market would be regarded as reasonably low wage. They're having what they call the cost of living crisis. They're waiting for the summer of discontent, the parallel to the winter of discontent of 1979. The railways are on strike just now. So what's going on with all of this? Fuel bills for heating and cooling your house have doubled. Many, many, many millions of houses have seen £100 increases in the cost of their fuel bills. And you've also had a food price spike. Now, even if your wages are going up, relative to that, your real wage is falling. And that's from an already low level. So I just want to point out that, particularly for the bottom 40 to 60% of the labour market in both the US and the UK, I don't think they're even in the pub because they can't afford a pint.
0: I'm just trying to set you both up for... A wise judgment of where we are. You can hear bad news everywhere. How bad is it? And what's the worst of it coming up? Let's think about it this way. Here's
1: a very simple way of thinking about it. The Federal Reserve is about is raising interest rates. Now it's a question of how far they can raise them because of international complications and currency effects and all this sort of stuff. But when you have an inflation problem, even if it's all supply side, you've only got one tool, you raise the price of money. Now, if you're at the bottom end of the American income distribution, your access to credit is very spotty at best and extraordinarily expensive. It's about to get even more expensive. So for the people who are the most hurt by inflationary pressures, who we are supposedly trying to help by raising interest rates, we're going to help them by making things even more expensive and most likely make many of them unemployed. On the other hand, if I had $100,000 sitting in my federally guaranteed savings account, let's just say to keep the number simple, the interest rate goes to 10%. Then literally over a year, somebody, for no good reason, is going to dump $10,000 in my account. Mm. I get free money just because I've got some already. And if I have $100,000, I don't really care how much the price of gas goes up because I'm rich enough not to give a damn. So how bad is it cannot be answered in
2: the aggregate. It is entirely about how different people's experiences feed into this. So if you have any kind of asset, that asset has been performing really well. And even if things aren't going as well in the stock market right now, they're still doing much better than they were three or four years ago. If you earn a wage, and this is most people, if you have a wage or a salary, you're not thinking of the long-term value of your assets and things don't look great. And what's perverse about the way the Fed works is their one tool that they agreed that they would use before the coronavirus crisis was quantitative easing. And they're not really sure what quantitative easing is supposed to do. But what it definitely does do is it raises the value of existing assets. If you have an asset and they're flooding us with money, then your asset goes up. That's our tool. Our one policy tool is to hope that people with assets get wealthier and spend more money. Already before the current crisis, there was just wild disparity and it
0: came down to, do you own stuff? Mark and Brendan, I guess the question really is, what kind of bad is it? It can feel end of the world bad or end of capitalism, bad, if you like capitalism. But is it worse than Jimmy Carter's misery index in the 70s and 80s, stagflation, that sort of bad?
1: We live in a very different economy from the 1970s. I mean, I think part of the problem is the kind of analogizing that we're doing. It's like we're stuck on a loop for that 70s show. Interesting. Back then, one third of all workers were in unions, which meant that if you struck for higher wages, then you might stand a chance of getting them. Capital wasn't nearly as mobile. It was here. You could strike and hold it up and effectively like, make a claim. And because a third of people were in unions, you had much broader coverage agreements so that the effects of those pay agreements actually covered people who weren't even in the union. The norm setting for the economy was entirely different. Now we have incredibly flexible labor markets, at will, hire, and fire, and all this stuff. And you know, while all that's good when it's on an upswing, and a downswing, basically, it means that labor has no way of pushing on costs. If part of the analysis of the 1970s and the misery mm-hmm. index was the wage price spiral and cost push inflation, that's not what's happening now. What's happened is we optimised global supply chains to an incredible degree, and they broke because
2: of a combination of pandemic and war. It's an entirely different world. To go back to your original question, How bad is it? How bad should people feel? One of the things I worry about is I feel much worse in my personal life when it doesn't feel like I have a plan. Hmm. Problems are worse when they don't appear to be solvable and nobody appears to be attempting to solve them. I think that's true politically as well. What is our solution right now? We've got the dumbest, most ineffectual solutions. The Biden administration is suggesting that it might get rid of a gas tax. That's pennies right now. They're saying that they might uh, get rid of tariffs on imported goods from China. Again, this is an effect that we aren't going to see in the next year in our own lives. The Fed does seem to be doing something. But what the Fed is doing feels a little insane. They are, in fact, trying to lessen economic output And half of this thing that we're trying to solve has nothing to do with economic output. It has to do with, are we prepared to make the things that we need to make right now? Can we make computer chips? Can we make electric cars? And that's not a problem that the Fed can solve. But the Biden administration has decided its solution is to rely on the Fed and offer quarter and half measures.
0: Brendan, I take it you feel there's a want of imagination here about ways out of this feeling.
2: Absolutely. There's a one of plans and there's a one of imagination. We've constrained ourselves within a few not very effective solutions, and one of which is you know, the Fed's going to go back to doing the thing it does, which is raise interest rates. And that doesn't seem to solve the kinds of inflation that we have right now.
1: So that gets us into an interesting area because let's think about how we got to that position. This is where the 70s story Mars. There's a kind of conventional wisdom of the story of the 70s, whereby the old Keynesian methods failed, and then we ended up devolving all of our policies to central banks, because we believed there was this thing called, variously, the natural rate of unemployment. And if you tried to push beyond that, you would only generate inflation. So you had to give policymaking authority over the central bank. And we did that. And what happened was the ability of government to even think about fiscal policy, taxes, spending, and other instruments for inflation control was taken completely off the table. There's a young economist called Isabella Weber. And she wrote a piece in The Guardian that said, maybe we should think about price controls. Because if you actually look at this historically, China, for example, avoided all of the shock therapy stuff that blew up Russia. Because essentially, it had buffer stocks and price controls. And it basically controlled the prices of the big important stuff and let the kind of consumer market go with free prices. And, and that's how they did it. And she said, maybe we should think about this. There were some instances of this after World War II, during World War II. There were other methods of controlling inflation. The entire economics establishment gave her a virtual mm. kicking on Twitter. Because she touched that third rail. She dared to say that there's life beyond the central bank. As, as Brendan says, they've got two tools, not just one. They have buying and selling assets to basically promote a wealth trickle down, quantitative easing. Doesn't really work, just boost asset prices. And the other one is raise or lower the price of borrowing money, which has a disproportionate effect on people who are already credit constrained, yet don't have enough of the credit in the system to actually make punishing them the solution to the problem. So we're kind of hamstrung.
2: Yeah, and the other problem is a lot of the inflation that we're seeing right now was baked in decades ago. If you look at sort of the regional areas that were hit the hardest by what they call the China shock—the sudden shift of manufacturing jobs to Mexico and then and then really to China—one of them is right in Rhode Island, right in Mark's backyard there. But the other one is in San Jose, in California, and that's because America stopped making electronics. We stopped making chips. We decided that we were going to optimize global supply chains and make those things elsewhere. And now, as Mark points out, that those supply chains are disrupted, you can't just magically start making things again. You have to have people who know how to do it. If you don't have those people, if they aren't already working, it's really difficult to magic them up out of nothing. When we decided that we were going to buy incredibly critical things to our economy from abroad, every economist would say, yes, that's the way you should do it. Almost every economist would say. And yet it's made us vulnerable to exactly this moment. We can't make things here. We cannot fix supply constraints because they're beyond our borders. And this is also true globally. That's very
1: important because we have such a tendency in the US to look at ourselves and then kind of think that it's the same everywhere else. And it's not. For those of you who are blaming the stimulus checks, Let's remember that, really, those stimulus checks were equivalent to $2,000 apiece twice. The last one was spent over a year ago. The notion that hmm. this is driving a global inflation among countries who never had the stimulus checks, that's a bit of a stretch, right? So the other thing to think about is how disruptive this is globally. I'll give you some examples. There's two factories in Ukraine that were owned by a local oligarch. They made all of the wiring clip harnesses for Volkswagen. They got damaged in the war. Volkswagens simply couldn't assemble their cars for several months. Consequently, the supply shrunk and the price went through the roof. Welcome to inflation from things that's got nothing to do with money and policy. I'll give you another one. 40% of the world's neon gas, which is essential Mm. for making chips, came out of a place that you'd never heard of until recently, Mariupol, Ukraine. You're not getting any more. That's why we can't make chips. Etc. Etc. Loads of the stuff that's going into this have nothing to do with whether we overstimulated
0: or whether interest rates hit the right thing. It's just not the story. Coming up, the retreat from over-efficient globalization. This is open source. Brendan Greeley, Mark Blythe. We're talking about money and finance in the shadow of war in Ukraine. In Adam Tooze's newsletter, you learned that there was a financial battle here between Putin and the West going back to 2007, and the war in Ukraine may be part of it. In 07, in Munich, Putin signaled a sort of showdown around U.S. hegemony. He was explicitly bailing out of the Western rules of economic order and saying, we'd rather do it without your dominance. I feel, A, this is somehow a continuation in Ukraine, but I think also we're spring training for a confrontation with China over dominance in the financial realm does that make sense
2: i think in american universities at least economists and the rest of us get socialized into thinking we have no choice but to do things exactly the way we currently do them and if you suggest for example as putin is in part suggesting that we build more things at home which is you know part of the origin of the trade war with china right now there is an answer it's ready it says do you want autarky Have you heard of a place called North Korea? It's not working out very well there. That is the level of sophistication of this conversation. And yet it has shut down the question of where do we build stuff? Should we be self-reliant? And Russia is saying, you know, it's not working out when we let capital move around. Well, (laughs) their capital goes wherever they want it to. They're saying, we think we can make a go of it if we don't rely on you. And our initial response was, ha, ha ha ha, good luck, comrade. But it turns out they haven't yet been completely wrong. And I think we should take notice of that. You know, Russia, it is a terrible economic system. They extract minerals and gas and all of the capital goes into European sports teams and fun stuff that only democracies provide. Right. But since 2014, they have been making more stuff in Russia for Russians. This system that we have said can't possibly work, Russia will collapse in six months, that didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen is because it is possible for countries to make more things domestically with people who live there, for people who live there. I am not in any way suggesting that Russia is an ideal system. But I remember I was at Bloomberg covering this in 2014, and we said, they'll never last. The country's going to collapse when we put these sanctions on. And it didn't. And that's a really useful data
0: point. Right. Resilience is the word. What is Putin drawing on in that, Mark? Well, an absolute ton of
1: cash every day coming over the border for gas supplies. I mean, you know, every country tells themselves stories. And the German story is the, the story of the export Weltmeister, right So we're the world champion of exports is great, and that's good because it's good to export and it's bad to import. So despite the fact that we wouldn't have any exports without those importers, that's what you want to do. You want to run an export surplus against the rest of the world. And we told ourselves stories about how this happened, and it's a late development story. All the late developers are exporters. It's a wage suppression story. It's about how investment is prioritized over consumption. Yeah, yeah, it's all true. You know what it's also dependent on? A 30-year one-way bet that you can always secure cheap gas from Russia. And that was the hidden component on this. Oh, and by the way, regardless of any political tensions, you can stick like 200 businessmen in an A380, fly them to China, and come back with enough trade agreements to sell that surplus that you have to export to the Chinese. And now both of those things are being kind of, uh, how can I put it, exposed as, as being slightly more fragile than we thought. So it's not just the United States gets stuck into ways of thinking. Everybody does. Now, let's bring this back to your original question. Does this mean that there's a kind of a shift away from the Western order and the Western hegemony, if you want to use that word? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what these countries want to do. There's a difficulty in doing so, and that's the dominance of the dollar, its role in foreign transactions, its role in invoicing, its role in bidding, its role as a unit of account and critical commodities, the fact that there are more dollars made outside the United States than actually are minted by the Fed through the euro markets. All of these things give incredible inertia to the system. But if China and Russia decide that they really want to decouple from that system, they can do it. And it's also, if you're still making billions of dollars a day because the Germans can't get off of gas, and you're using that to fund the army while you're under sanctions, if I was sitting in Russia, I'd be kind of laughing at sort of like the performance of the West on this. You're still putting your faith in sanctions, which Brendan showed really are not going to bring us to our knees, whilst giving us
0: billions of dollars a day in foreign exchange. What do you think's going to happen? That's fascinating, Mark. But here's a question from the Quincy Institute, where the byword is restraint, especially in foreign policy and military, above all. My question, is there a version of restraint that needs to be taken more seriously in the world of finance? And I think The Economist magazine, just out, thinks there is. The Economist's lead editorial says the pandemic and the war in Ukraine have messed up the supply chain's shown the complications of sort of total globalization. It's arguing that a new globalization is about security, not absolute efficiency, and that both firms and governments have got to work in that direction. It sounds like what you're noting about Russia and China, Mark, that they they can do an awful lot on their own. I think what that piece is missing is the
2: restraint of capital holders. So it's been an article of faith in the economy that we have been in up until the last, I don't know, five years, two years, that capital should be free to move and do and go wherever it wants to invest in whatever it wants. Right. I don't think that has produced as many benefits as we hoped that it would. And so we built a world, you know, the post-war world essentially comes down to ultimately where we ended up in the early 2000s was goods should usually be able to move across borders. People never – And capital always. And I don't know that that's the right proportion. Maybe capital should never be able to move across borders. Maybe you should always have to spend and invest your money in the place where you make it, which would give you more of an incentive to want that to be a nice place. Um, I think it's interesting that a lot of oligarchs in bad places like to spend their money in nice places. I also think the sort of German system that Mark described, there's an analog to that here in the United States. You know, the Germans, they have this really nice way of self-dealing under a halo, and they call it Ostpolitik, the politics of the East. And the idea is, yeah, sure, we're buying all this Russian gas, and you know, we're flying over to China to close these trade deals, but it's going to bring them closer to us. They're going to embrace our values, and that's why we have to do this. And that didn't happen. We had the exact same conversation in the United States in the late 90s. Both parties here said, we have to bring China into the current World Trade Organization. We have to put them on a most favored nation status with our other trading partners because it will bring them closer to our values. A lot of things happened after that, but them coming closer to our values and us feeling aligned in the world and wanting the same things out of the world, that is the thing that did not happen. So this idea that we keep disproving century after century after century that trade makes friendship, like, we got to let go of that one.
1: I totally agree with Brandon. A corollary of that, to go back to what you were saying at the start, press, is that, you know, we're going to end up with these kind of friends with benefits trading blocks. Friends
0: with benefits trading blocks.
1: People you're willing to sleep with are the ones you're willing to trade with, and you're no longer willing to do it with anyone, right? So when you do that, the, the, if you will, the kind of monetary sphere is going to constrict accordingly. A good way to think about this is what happened in the 1920s. Earlier on, I'm decrying analogies, but now I'm going to make one. In the 1920s, world trade collapsed, and it was re-emerged as a kind of series of bilateral deals. But the bigger powers at the time, including the United Kingdom, basically closed off. The Brits had this thing called the imperial preference. So they were really only going to trade in pounds with the empire, and that was going to be their solution to that particular moment. Well, you're dealing with this much smaller area. You're dealing with uh, other countries that are poorer than the one that you're trading with. You're definitely going to do less with that rather than with a global system. So yeah, you can do friends with benefits trading, but ultimately you're working with fewer partners
0: and the space that you're playing in is going to be more constricted. Question mark, isn't it premature for Anthony Blinken and the Biden administration to be decoupling from China because they sense China really doesn't want to play by our whole rule book. Well, it depends. I mean, decoupling in which way? I mean, the notion
1: that globalization is completely unraveled because of this stuff simply isn't true. But if you have a look, I'll give you two little examples, right? All the stuff that we learned about PPE, personal protective equipment, during the pandemic, right? It's still the case that half of the reagents in a PCR test that you would use in the United States not only comes from China, comes from one factory in China. How's that for dependence? Now, let's think about this for a minute. You've got Mm -hmm. a a kind of imperial ruler in the form of Xi, who has decided that he's going to defeat the pandemic through endless lockdowns. Let's say that you're a firm. Let's say that you make stuff in China, and Xi decides to put the factories that you subcontract to into a lockdown for two months, three months, six months. Then you're bringing kind of what you'd almost call fiduciary risk into your supply chains, because you can't guarantee that your film will be able to supply the stuff that you're writing contracts for. That's kind of a danger going forward. So the decoupling isn't just something for governments to decide. It's Mm. also something for businesses
0: to decide. Let me ask you both. Is there any analogy to be made between the financial tensions of a one-world system and the war in Ukraine over whether they lean NATO and the West or are controlled by Russia. Are these corresponding fights? They feel that way to me.
2: I don't think that we're very good at asking capital whether it has any moral obligations.
1: Let alone national sympathies.
2: One of the bywords of of the economic system, again, that we had until two years ago, now we're sort of bereft of one, trying to figure out what the next one is, was efficiency. You had to have efficiency in manufacturing. You had to have efficiency in trade. You had to have efficiency in capital allocation. You would look at something, you'd say, well, that's not right. Should they be able to take their money and put it over here? And should they have to keep their money here? And the answer was always, well, if you do that, you're going to mess with efficient capital allocation. The assumption there is there are no people, there are no human beings who have any moral agency whatsoever. In the United States, in Germany, in the UK, we need an ability to tell people, even if it would be more efficient, perhaps you have moral obligations attached To the capital that you have. Perhaps you should decide to do different things. There's absolutely no way to morally compel people to do different things with their capital. And this is the problem with Mm. ESG investing, investing that's supposed to have a social purpose. What's insane about it is that it often tries to sell itself as, look, you can make money while doing good. Horse apples. You cannot do that. The problem with the bad industries is that they're super profitable. And if you want out of the bad industries, you have to accept a lower return. If you want to invest in companies that pay their workers better and that don't cheat them on hours or wages, then you have to accept a lower return. And nobody's prepared to have this conversation where if we want good things, capital has to make less money.
0: That's not an end of capitalism, but it's, it's, it sounds
2: like a prog- – Let me actually answer your question. If we're going to make a comparison to between waging war and changing the capital system and finance, it is easier in America to tell someone your children have to go somewhere and get killed than to tell them you're going to have to accept a lower return because of this other thing we want to do. That's insane.
1: Or alternatively, the notion that corporations, which going into the pandemic had the highest ever markups and profit margins in basically American history, that were then turbocharged by the pandemic, which, if you went on to earning calls over the past six months, you would basically hear people talking about how much money they're making across sectors across the United States if you even mention, maybe we, these guys are making above normal mm. profit. <laughs> Instead of basically making people who are already poor pay more for their credit, maybe we should have a windfall tax on all this carbon stuff that's gone through the roof. Now, the Brits eventually did this after rejecting it with spurious lotions that BP was never going to invest again in Britain if you ever did a windfall tax, despite the fact that BP came out and said, actually, that's not true. We're totally fine with it. Eventually, they did it under extreme duress. But the notion that in the United States you would even think about something like this, this wouldn't be just you're interfering with efficient capital allocation. You're a communist, sir. You're taking away from profits. And that's the one thing you don't do here. Not just will we get our children killed first. There's no way you touch profits.
0: What I hear is that restraint as an idea, restraint of power, restraint of capital, restraint of billionaires, applies sort of across the board in a very useful way. I had that thought, and then I read it in The Economist. The Economist piece ends up, this is for you, Brendan, that companies and nations have to learn that resilience comes from diversification, not concentration. Are they up to enacting this policy? Well, The Economist says myopia and insularity abound. Can I get on in this
1: one first, Brendan? Yeah, please. This whole conversation about resilience is (laughs) bollocks, right? And I'll explain why, right? This is exactly the same logic that gave us the financial crisis. It said, if you make an individual bank safe in terms of its capital buffers, and all banks have safe capital buffers, then you can't have a crisis. So what you're saying is by making the units safe on some metric, resilient, should we say, that you can't have a crisis on a systemic level. This is absolutely ass-backwards way of thinking about this. What's actually happened is that a system called globalization and global supply chains, has broken down. And it doesn't matter whether you're Elon Musk or Volkswagen or the, or the Brendan's household. Your strategies for resilience can't change the fact that you can't get the stuff that you need, because it's seven mm-hmm. spaces removed from your control. So this entire conversation about making yourself more resilient it just literally leads nowhere. What's happened is a failure at a systemic level. And you can't fix systemic problems at the unit
2: level. It's just a category error. And it's also by the time you need to fix them, it's too late. You know, we needed to be having this conversation. You know, is there any limit to the value of efficiency? We needed to have it 10 years ago. I am right now reading uh, somebody's dissertation about the depression in Newleton, Louisiana. And one of the problems they had there was that landowners had been discouraging sharecroppers from growing any of their own crops, which meant that for several generations, sharecroppers lost the ability to know how to can, to preserve, to smoke, to do any of the things that you need to do to have food on hand. When the Depression hit... The landowners could not find a way to feed the sharecroppers. There was absolutely no way to get food into Newellton, Louisiana, and everybody had lost the ability to know how to do it. You cannot one morning wake up and say, oh, yeah, you should have been planting vegetables for generations. You need to have been doing it for generations. And so we need to have another big honest talk about what we stopped talking about in economics and policy and what we
0: lost when we stopped talking about those things. Question, why are people so sure that Joe Biden and the Democrats are floundering?
1: I'm far from an expert on this, but I'll give you my two cents if you want it. Please. Um, How about the following? There's a perception which has been weaponized by right-wing media in this country that the entire Democratic Party has been taken over by woke socialists. There's the example of the San Francisco school board elections, the Virginian suburbs revolt, there's families who are deeply concerned about the teaching of such issues as uh, trans identity, homosexuality in schoolrooms, and that has been whipped up into a giant moral panic. The Democrats are literally unable to speak about this. They can't, so they have no answer. So they're getting beaten to death by a cultural club. This is not new for this to happen to the Democratic Party. Second, Democrats can't pass any legislation. How's that Bill Back Better doing Basically, you have a veto point in Joe Manchin. And he's going to continue to veto almost everything, pretty much everything. So the notion that by the time that you get to November, Biden's going to lose the ability to pass legislation, he never had it. And given that you never had it, he's forced into these performative little tricks that Brendan mentioned earlier. The, how are we going to do something about inflation? Maybe we'll take the gas tax off. Maybe we'll get into some tariffs on China. There's not much you can do. The 15% global tax thing, the deal that came in two years ago, that's not going to get through the Senate as well. So you haven't done anything. You can't do anything. And everyone thinks you're a woke monster. So I'd say that's a pretty good way of sort of stultifying the ability of the Democrats to make a case for themselves. And then, of course, the third one is they said they were going to sort out COVID. Was their response better than Trump's? Absolutely. But then there was the mutations. And then there was the controversy, not just over masks, but over the effectiveness of policies. And then there was the whole surety that the North and the Northeast and the Democratic bases were following the science. And you were going to see this because all those southern states were just going to have terrible numbers. And none of that worked out. Hmm. So I just don't see what they've done
0: that's great and wonderful that's going to swing voters their way. Coming up the finance industry that swallowed the economy. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source with the economist Mark Blythe and the journalist Brendan Greeley, who's on his way to becoming an economic historian. We are puzzling about what's missing in the bafflement of the 2022 moment.
2: I keep coming back to this topic that Chris brought up of of the failure of imagination. The electoral strategy of both Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden was vote for us. We're not the crazies. That's not a really effective governing strategy. We're not the crazies is is not a way to get anything passed. It's not a way to inspire anyone. I don't know what Joe Biden wants other than for inflation to magically go away. And so if we look at the list of legislation that's passed, it's not nothing. A massive infrastructure bill that Washington has been unable to pass for two decades That's a big deal. You know, they did pass a stimulus. There are things that are happening. But because Democrats' entire electoral strategy is vote for us, we're not the crazy guys, none of this is articulated in any kind of big vision. Here's where we're going. This is what's going to happen. Here's how we're going to get there. When the Democrats talk about global warming, which is a massive problem, which we haven't even gotten to yet because the list of problems is too long, it rings hollow because it doesn't seem like they're that committed to doing anything about it. They seem to be slightly more committed than the, than the Republicans to talking about it, but not any more committed to
0: doing anything. Brendan, you're getting to me that what's missing is something new, something different, something not radical necessarily. I mean, we all get down on the Democrats. And then we realize that the alternative that we have sounds like hell on earth. Climate denial, anti-science, Trumpism in short, the Proud Boys running the world let 's see what we can do how How much can we point to a reinvention of our system in what time we've got? Well, as Brandon
1: said, you know during the initial period of the administration. You get a big infrastructure bill through, you get all those other things Brian just talked about. Great. But then the minute it begins to threaten, if you will, the kind of business models of the Republican mm-hmm. states who are heavily carbon dependent, then basically there's a veto. My feeling for where this goes is that in 2024, when the Republicans get back in, they're going to do to ESG, environmental, social, and governance, all the basically pro green sort of business stuff, they're going to do to that what they did to critical race theory. And yeah. they're going to politicize it. They're going to turn it into, they've already started. They call it woke capitalism. There's going mm-hmm. to be a bonfire of ESU regulations. And America's going to go on the last big carbon binge. And the rate of return on this is going to be enormous. At a time when Europe is struggling with migration, with food, with war, with warming, with energy, America's self-sufficient in food and self sufficient in energy. They're going to double down on the old carbon model. And over the short term, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be, in terms of making money on a quarterly period, the best period ever. And because of that, they'll get re-elected. They'll get two cycles of this. But it's like basically discovering two extra kegs of beer at the end of a keg party. You're super excited, but the
0: hangover's <laughs> going to be worse and the morning's going to be catastrophic. But that's the way we're going to go. The question may be how do you fireproof the imagination? Maybe the green new deal for starters against political money, against the billionaires which seem to own Congress. They do own Congress.
2: I, uh, I know you're not supposed to say this on a radio show, but I don't know and I despair. Not you, Brendan. We need you. On this conversation, we have a Cape Fear problem. Um, which is that uh, we're spending all of our time complaining about our defense attorney. We're actually not worried about the prosecution. So Cape Fear, for anybody who hasn't seen either version of it, you know, the the criminal comes back after spending time in jail and he actually goes for his defense attorney, not the prosecution attorney, because he says they were just doing their job. I'm not worried about them. You failed to protect me. And so that's what we're doing right now. We're all somehow saying Joe Biden is failing too. So I just want to recognize that, like, we are focused on the Democrats because it's the only party we feel like we have any control over, any purchase on. But we should recognize that that's the conversation that we're having. We're asking all of these things of the Democratic mm. Party. That said, I wish we had a Democratic Party with leaders who were younger than 80, younger than 70, <laughs> younger than 60, and located a- anywhere other than on the coast where their votes are assured and they don't have to be in any way creative. I think the lack of creativity right now, particularly the Republican Party is being insanely creative. You may not agree with what they're doing, um, but Ron DeSantis is a smart, dedicated, creative, capable politician. What we get from the Democrats, and particularly the Democrats in Congress, is none of them are worried about getting reelected because they're all in these seats where it's guaranteed. And so none of them have to think about, like, In any way how they might appeal to the rest of the country, in any way how the Democrats might carve back out slices of Iowa and these other rural states that used to be partly Democratic and are now lost to them forever. Why is there zero ability for the Democrats to appeal anywhere other than the places where their leadership is safe? And so maybe I can turn that into like a small ray of hope, which is that perhaps... Perhaps the next defeat will cause the Democrats to wonder why can we why do we assume that we will never get a vote in a rural county? I want somebody to spend a lot of time answering that question. They've just given up. And there are important things that Democrats could do in those counties. For example, if you're a chicken farmer, those economics are miserable. And the reason they're miserable is because all of the risk has been shifted onto to you and all of the profit has been shifted up to two or three firms that run that industry. Everybody who lives in counties where they're chicken farms understand these economics. And everybody who is part of these economics knows that neither the Republicans nor the Democrats are doing anything about it.
0: Brendan, that's a plausible campaign speech, and you're the guy to give it.
2: Oh, no, I have a terrible story. I can't be a politician, Chris, because my life story is that I was a journalist and now I'm an academic. Can you think of two more reviled professions in America?
1: <laughs> well, it, it's, not, it's not just that. It's really also difficult to get people marching forward progressively or willing to die on the battlements for industrial concentration as a problem. <laughs> so, you know, that, know. That's, that's a tough one to whistle. It's a tough one to whistle. <laughs> <a>, no <an laughs> hummable tune in that one.
0: Mark, I want to ask you, in this proxy war with Russia in Ukraine, in the new tensions with China, how is the dollar doing? You love to remind us that we stay afloat in the world because we can sell American debt abroad and that the dollar is the reserve currency in the world. Is it in danger?
1: No, no, it it is not in danger. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to buy some Russian debt. How secure is that? You're going to buy some Chinese debt when Xi just turns around and says, No, you can't come in for two years to claim anything, your capital or anything else. And we're going to lock down this city for an indefinite period of time. If anything, the moves by these countries is making the dollar more desirable rather than less. So I just don't see how these moves are making things difficult
0: for the dollar. Brendan, the connection is with your study of the dollar, the history of it. How safe is our dollar?
2: Let me reframe your question, Chris. Is the sound dollar, is the strong dollar good for us? I'm not sure that it is. So Mark is absolutely right. He and I have, he've, he and I have gone around in circles about this. Um, if you pulled the rug out from underneath the dollar, if it were possible to pull the rug out from underneath the dollar tomorrow, it would be a disaster in America. Our entire system is built around a strong dollar. So I would never suggest that we should make the dollar weak immediately. But I do think we need to have a hard conversation about whose idea it was to hold on to a strong dollar and who benefited. So if you think about currency as a product uh someone has to make dollars when what wall street does is essentially they take you know various kinds of debt and they figure out how to turn them into liquid dollars that people can buy and trade and sell when we have a strong dollar the people who benefit the most are people within about you know, three square miles of Manhattan and literally one square mile of London, who are really, really good at creating dollars. That, that That's where we manufacture dollars. It's just in those places. We don't do it anywhere else. And so when we decide that we need a strong dollar, that's really good for finance. And when you look at finance as a percentage of the American economy, it's... Uh, It's metastasized. And I, I use that word very carefully and on purpose over the last three decades because what America has gotten really good at is creating dollars. You know, Mark has heard this rant before. There's this idea in economics called Dutch disease. Uh, The Netherlands discovered offshore gas in the 1970s, and uh, they became a gas exporting country, uh, and it ruined all of their domestic industries. We have Dutch disease, but our Dutch disease is with the dollar. We can export the dollar. We can make as many dollars as anybody wants. We're the only people who can make them. I mean, not completely the only people, but we're the best at it. This has happened in a way that has choked off innovation and production in all of our other industries all we do anymore is make dollars. and so i'm not sure the strong dollar um you know it's nice if you're flying to paris for a vacation but not a lot of americans do that every summer. as a timely alert you sounded. oh yeah i accidentally i'm sorry i accidentally dinged my water glass and it sounded as if i was i was i was making a point with a with a, with a sound cue.
0: Hmm? should we have a moment of silence in memory of crypto guys? <laughs> um it's not dead
1: yet It's not dead yet. Just you wait. It's going to come back. It's going to be a new paradigm of value. It's going to change everything.
2: Brendan? I'm not willing to engage in schadenfreude about it. And here's why. Like I spend, I have wasted a lot of time in my life on Twitter being yelled at by Bitcoin bros who tell me that I need to learn more about the history of money, a subject in which I'm literally getting a PhD right now. But the problem with Bitcoin and the problem with crypto culture in general is that they're half right. They look at the current banking system and they say it's awful. It's inaccessible. It keeps poor people out. It keeps transfer fees too high. It doesn't make credit available to everybody at equal rates. And every single one of those things is absolutely true. It just turns out that crypto assets and crypto liabilities and crypto culture were not up to the task of fixing that. But just because crypto bros are wrong about the solution does not mean that they were wrong about the problem. And so the idea that we can sort of smugly say like, oh, well, I guess we don't need to worry about that anymore. No, we definitely, Need to worry about accessibility in finance. It's just that crypto bros are not the solution.
0: Brendan, you've moved swiftly through the ranks of economic journalism, Businessweek, Bloomberg, the FT, on your way now to a PhD. What are you learning about the media of money, the coverage of finance? Oh, I think we all have a Bloomberg problem.
2: And I, I say that with a sort of great affection for the institution uh, of, of Bloomberg, where I learned how to be a financial journalist. If you want to cover finance, it's highly technical. You sort of need to do some training. You need to learn how to look at the data. You need to sort of learn how to call up the data literally on a Bloomberg terminal. And the best place to do that is as a journalist for Bloomberg. We all trained there, and then we go out to other papers around the country and around the world, and we cover finance, and we cover the Federal Reserve and the ECB. We're all trained in the same place. The problem is, when you train at Bloomberg, you sort of you become invested in markets, and you think that they're your friend, and you think that when they go up, things are good. You become invested in bankers because you understand how they talk, and you think that when bankers are doing well, everybody else is doing well, too.
0: We also get invested in heroes like Jack Welch, who turn out in the biographies afterward to have had very clay feet oh yeah when we that's a problem with bloomberg as well when people like that give us quotes we run them when jamie
2: diamond says something's happening we run that jamie diamond told us that something's happening like why am i asking jamie diamond about the economy that's like asking a pitcher about the physics of the baseball like they're 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 next to each other but that doesn't imply any understanding whatsoever mark
1: i'll give you a good story about this my wife used to work for bloomberg in london and it's in the it's in the run up to basically the dot-com crisis, a so period from about 97 to 99. And she hadn't yet done an advanced degree in economics, which she now has, but she doesn't really use it in her current line of work. And the reason she ended up doing it is because this is the conversation we had in 97. I'm a producer on financial news. Every day, we have these people from the city of London that come in. And they start talking about the future. And because things are going reasonably well just now, we ask them. And they say, well, what's going on? And they go, well, it's because of X, Y, and Z. And what do you expect things to do? I expect them to keep going well, and it's going to be good. <laughs> and then you, know, you go another year, and you ask them. The same people say the same things, only it's going to be even more better. right? And then you get to 1999, when things are going super, super good, and they're practically freaking out about what's going to happen, how awesome it is. Are these people literally just sticking their head out of the window? and sucking in what everybody else is saying and repeating it on television? Or Mm -hmm. do they know stuff? And I had to say to her, the only way you're going to figure that out is if you go do an advanced degree in economics. So she did. She Uh went off and she did a master's in econ. At the end of it, I said to him, so what do you think? Are they or are there people out there who know that stuff? She goes, there are some people out there who know stuff. They're seldom in markets. And most of those commentators are And I think
2: she's absolutely right. (laughs) I I, I agree. I think that there's a need for certainty around financial markets. We want to know that things are going to be okay. We, of course, can't be sure that things are going to be okay. But you know who's really confident? CEOs. And so when we have people with athletic builds and nice (laughs) hair tell us, with complete suave confidence that this is what's going to happen next. We think, aha, that must be true. He feels it. He, he shows such conviction. But we just don't know. I was in a green room about to go on television and a very famous general asked what I did. And I said, I'm a financial news reporter. And he said, well, Brendan, where's your portfolio right now? And I thought, what? What? You must have financial advisors. You can't possibly be asking me what to do with your money. And my only advice is 60% stocks,
0: 40% bonds, and just hope it works out. That's the only advice anyone can give. Mark, you always get the last word. And my last question is always, are you thinking of moving to another country?
1: No, absolutely not. Let's think about it this way. Let's let's go back and talk about climate change. And let's start with the observation that this summer really feels a bit hotter. It's already one of the, I think it's the fifth hottest on record already. And that spike just keeps going up and up and up and up. As Brendan says, Democrats like to talk about decoupling GDP from energy consumption, but they don't do anything about it. Maybe because they can't get it through Congress, or maybe because at the end of the day, they just want to make as much money as the Republicans. Who knows? Um, The Europeans are serious about this. Their European Green New Deal is a real thing. The old structural funds for integration are becoming transition funds. The ECB has got this idea of green teltros, basically long-term loans for investing in green infrastructure. And Russia has been the wake-up call for this. That, like, they really have to do this, and they have to go that way. I just don't see any of that actually happening in the United States. Now, on the one hand, you'd be like, well, then you should surely go to Europe, right? OK, fair enough. Um, We already have 50-degree temperatures, so-called wet bulb temperatures, whereby your body outside of air conditioning can't cool down in North India, in Pakistan. IPCC projections has this happening increasingly to China over the next 10 years. It is entirely conceivable that over the next decade, we will begin to see climate migration on a scale which will make the current immigration panics across the world look like a footnote in history. The United States is relatively well protected on its southern border. But even then, we're talking about perhaps a 10x increase from base just now. Europe could be looking at literally 100 million climate refugees. Because of globalization, they're food insecure in Europe because they import a lot of their food. Britain imports 2 thirds of its food. It doesn't have its own fuel. That's the other rich part of the world that's actually doing better in terms of policies. So unfortunately, I've got the rock and the hard place problem. I can stick here for the last great carbon bonanza and watch it all go south. It's a bit like being on the first class bar in the Titanic as opposed to the steerage class bar. But the alternative is just to jump to the iceberg and hope for the best. I'm not sure that's a great policy either. We
0: need you right here, Mark. And I love the duo with you and Brendan. Thank you both. <laughs> the dynamic
2: duo. <laughs> We're, the dynamic duo where Mark gets the last word.
1: Yeah, I know, it's ridiculous, but you are my sidekick, so shut up and take (laughs) your
0: place. (laughs) Here I am at your beck and call. Mark Blythe is a political economist at Brown and co-author with Eric Lonergan of Angrynomics. Brendan Greeley, Ph.D. candidate at Princeton, has also been a journalist with Bloomberg and the Financial Times, and before that, with Open Source. You've just heard the concluding installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Learn more about them at quincyinst.org, where you'll find, for instance, their webinar on the U.S. and Asia toward economic integration or fragmentation. And check out the Quincy Institute's online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman, with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leighton. Thank you for listening. Open Source is a proud member of Hub & Spoke a collective of smart, independent podcasters, including Vermont-based producer Erica Heilman, whose show is Rumble Strip. We congratulate Erica on a stunning achievement. Her 2021 episode, Finn and the Bell, about the death of a young man named Finn Rooney, has won a Peabody Award. You can find that podcast and its creator at rumblestripvermont.com, and you can browse the whole Hub & Spoke lineup at HubSpoke audio.org.